The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, this is the Partially Examined Life, a preview to the follow-up discussion that Wes and I had on some of the topics raised in episode 206 on Lucretius's De Rerum Natura. The full discussion is 50-some minutes. I'm going to play you two chunks here to give you a flavor of that, and because I think they're intrinsically interesting, in this first one, for about nine minutes, we talk more about the properties of atoms, according to this ancient view. So one of the characteristics of atoms that there's a limited number of types of shapes in 480, a corollary truth, the number of the various atom shapes is limited. If not, it would follow that some seeds would have to be unlimited in bulk. For given the confines of one tiny thing, whatever it is, the shapes it can assume cannot be many. Suppose our atoms have three minimal parts, or even add a few. Sure, shuffle all the parts of a single atom, bottom and top, switching the right with the left. You will learn every permutation and what shape each gives the atom as a whole. And then if you should happen to want new shapes, you'd have to add more parts. The consequence, the shufflings will require, by the same logic, new parts, should you want even newer shapes. Therefore, a growth in bulk must follow upon the novelty forms. You cannot think, then, that the number of atomic shapes is endless. You'd have to say that atoms of monstrous size exist, which I have proved impossible. As for your Persian robes and gleaming purple of blah 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 blah, and golden peacocks dipped in the tint of delight, they would lie drab, new colors would win the field, so too the odor of myrrh and the savor of honey, scorned, and the song of the swan and artful lyre, the muse herself, defeated, would rest silent. One excellence would spring up to pass the next. Then, too, things would regress the other way, surrender to the worse as to the better, for things would sink into greater nastiness of smell or sound or sight of taste. But since such out-of-bounds do not exist, since limits cap the whole range of things, you must confess atomic shapes are also limited. So I think there are two arguments here, right? If there were an infinite number of atom shapes, you'd have atoms that are so large that we could see them these big (laughs) and the other part of it is if you had an infinite number of atom shapes any phenomenon you could think of would have to occur any macro level phenomenon it's like saying if you had an infinite number of shapes to atoms it's like establishing an infinite number of physical laws for the universe do you know what i'm saying since the shapes are really that you know when we talk about atom shapes we're really talking about his substitute for the rules of atomic and subatomic interactions and the way they can combine. And I thought it was interesting that here he was appealing to our judgment of the quality of things and hence to our sensory interaction with things because he thinks that, say, unpleasant sounds are because the sound atoms in question are rough, are of a shape that scrapes our ear the wrong way. And there's actually, in the herder that I'm reading for this week, he kind of says a similar thing in the 18th century. So I thought we can we can talk about that connection when we get to it. But like, this is not quite so crazy old-fashioned as I might have expected, given that. The fact that he's making this one-to-one correspondence between physical properties in the world and phenomenal properties and saying, because our phenomenal experience is limited, therefore the physical experience must be limited. 
there's only so sweet or so nasty a melody can get, a sound can get. So there has to be a limit to what different shapes are would be causing this. I mean, the whole thing begins with his kind of initial premise for this whole thing is just the principle of sufficient reason as it's applied to macro level objects. So when he says nothing can come from nothing, he's basically saying that things have to be caused, that every event in the world or phenomenon has to have a cause, has to have an explanation. And in the case of objects, we know they're composed of parts and the parts have to, in some sense, be the explanation for the existence of the whole object. And then when we get to this point, we're thinking about specifically about limitations on the causes. They can't be entirely promiscuous. They have to be defined and they have to be limited in form, let's say that. Otherwise, you would just reproduce a kind of chaos at the macro level, like everything that could happen would be happening. And you wouldn't get a certain kind of universe. You would just get everything. He's not able to talk about the specifics of subatomic and atomic physics, but he can say, look, but it is, there is specific stuff going on. And then the next section is where he basically says, even though the number of shapes are finite, we still need an infinite number of atoms to account for macro level phenomenon. And I think we kind of alluded to this. Yeah, this is a little bit after 540. Still, if the store of matter were not endless, it would lack the atoms to be begotten and born to be nourished and to grow, it could not be. Assume that a finite number of gendering atoms for one sole thing are hurtling through the all. Whence, where, how, by what force can they unite in such a swirling sea of foreign matter? They'll have no means, I think, to form an alliance. But as in the surge of big ship splintering storms, the great sea smashes and scatters cross beams, hulls. I think this is a product of the fact that the universe comes about by a kind of trial and error, which is to say we're relying on randomness. We're relying on all these what are random collisions, and we have to wait until something by accident, you know, this is kind of an evolutionary account, a stable macro form by accident comes to be and then becomes a kind of cause for more stability in the universe. But if we don't have an infinite number of atoms doing their thing we're not going to be able to get that trying to determine if he has a some notion of entropy here in this part you're talking about you know, just as the boat be smashed and he goes on for some length at this yeah the swirling cross currents of matter will scatter and spray them once and forever so that they'll never be able to hurl into alliance keep their true stable or add new atoms and grow both of which happen as facts at hand show plainly Things are begotten and born, and they increase. Therefore, the number of any sort of atom is clearly infinite to supply all things. Yeah, I think I was wrong in what I just said. I think I was referring to an earlier argument. Yeah, you're right. This is what he's talking about, a kind of entropy. But he says here, just after that, 570, so lethal collisions cannot prevail forever, shuttering all life in a perpetual tomb. Nor indeed can the birth and increase-giving collusions keep the creature safe for good. Thus, battle lines of atoms drawn and deadlocked engage their war for all eternity. Now here, now there, the forces of life prevail or are put to flight. The funeral song is mingled with the cry of babies come to the shores of light. No night has followed a day, no dawn a night, which has not heard mingled with infants' cries, weepings that walk with funerals and death. So he's talking, yeah, here about a kind of metabolic equilibrium. It's not just that we're going to add atoms to our bodies 
indefinitely and grow and grow and grow <laughs> beyond you know a certain height and hopefully a certain weight. There are limits. So we're jettisoning atoms, we're taking atoms in, and at some point something's happening that's going to make us die at some point and scatter our atoms. And then I think he's saying you can apply this to any phenomenon. I'm just not sure that I see the need for the infinite number of atoms if he's going to have this idea that there's an equilibrium. So yes, things spray the atoms apart, but other forces spray them together. That's what it sounds like if you say the vet, you know life and death are constantly fighting. If you have a more negative chance-based view, which I thought is what he had. So, you know, it's entirely likely that things will break apart. That's just the way things work. It's not very likely that things will come together, but because there's infinite time and infinite numbers of atoms, somewhere in that long strain, they certainly will, and they will many times. So in that sense, it's likely that they come together, but you could still have a very overall negative entropic view of you know, the things, as you just said, are destined to fall apart. And that's why you would need the infinite atoms. If you really think that the forces are equal of coming together and falling apart, you know, so it's not just chance. It's once you have a little bit of start of an organization, then there's a, a force that comes into play that really kicks that into high gear. I'm not sure how that force would work, what resources are available to him for giving an account of that inertia of growth, you know, at least certainly if you've got a fully functioning organism, then it has systems by which it will digest things, you know, and add atoms to itself. But if you're really talking on the, you know, just a few carbon atoms have come together, what will make more carbon atoms attached to them? Like, I'm not sure what he has to say, like why it would be any more likely for two carbon atoms to, to stick to each other than I have 15 carbon atoms and is it more likely then that the 16th will stick onto that than just one-to-one? Or is it just really purely luck and which ones happen to be speeding by? Yeah, yeah, this is actually kind of puzzling now that we look closely at it. For the second and shorter chunk here, we're going to tell you more about semblances, about Lucretius's epistemology. Because it's interesting that he is so adamantly against skepticism, where the idea of atoms is often put forward to support skepticism. Like, look how macroscopic things don't look like they're made of atoms. They look like one solid thing. So isn't it amazing that our senses are so wrong? What they really are is a bunch of atoms, is a multiplicity, not a unity. And so therefore our senses are wrong and he's not going to follow that line here. Yeah. Well, so in the beginning, right, we did talk about this in the main episode, but he has this semblance theory where you kind of get these kind of films from things that yeah, let's re just read that. So now I shall show you, and the point is crucial, that ghosts of things, which we call semblances, exist, which, like light films shucked from a surface, flutter this way and that through the air. These films will strike our minds when we're awake, but in our dreams they terrify as we behold the bizarre shapes and semblances of those who lack the light. So, I say, thinnest images and forms peel away from the utmost skin of things. A dullard could understand this from what follows. So a part of what's interesting about that, right, is we, we would think today about the eyes darting around because we can only attend to one part of an object at a time. And ultimately, we'll see that these films that he's talking about are composed of atoms and light plays a role. So I think he is thinking of light bouncing off things. I'm not sure how light actually I 
I tried to figure that out, but I didn't fully figure it out. But I think light has something to do with this. But these are atoms going into the eyes. Well, I think the semblances are going to be, or other senses, right? Yeah. Atoms affecting our senses. They just, he likes to think of it in this gestalt sort of way in which we get the film itself is composed of atoms, but it's this three dimensional husk <laughs> that comes at us. Yeah, he's giving these comparisons on the next couple of pages here of, yeah, smoke drifts off things, heat drifts off things. Is it so weird that tiny bodies may be cast forth from their former pattern and preserve the object's shape? The swifter, since they're placed in the front rank, too few to tangle badly. And we can surely see that many things pour out their wealth, not only from deep in the core, but from the surface too. For instance, color. And he's very poetic, (laughs) going on and on here. Thus certain husks or shells of things exist, subtle as filaments fluttering everywhere. Jumping down to 90, what's more, all smoke and odor and vapor and other such things gush out in a confusion, since as they work their way from deep inside, they're graded by the winding passages. There are no fine straight roads for them to march, but when a delicate film of surface color is released, there's nothing in the way to rend it, since it stands ready placed in the front rank. Okay, so assemblance, I do think, like you said, is supposed to be visual, because he's contrasting it to an odor image. (laughs) We don't have odor images. That's just not the way that the odor atoms move. I think that's right. And as it's phrased here, it kind of militates against my reading, although later on, it's going to be kind of contradictory, because it sounds like he's saying, okay, the film itself, he hasn't said yet exactly that it's composed of atoms, and he's speaking about it as if it has the macro level properties, right? So he's talking about the films as having color, for instance, and then that affecting the senses. There's a difference, right, between is it the macro level properties that affect the senses or is it the atoms affecting the senses and then producing the experience of the macro level property? I think actually he suggests both in this contradictorily. So this whole section could be read as him embracing ontological emergence ontological emergence being you know the kind of emergence that isn't simply a product of interaction with the subject with the subject senses but is a way of saying look at one level of reality there's the atoms at another level of reality there really is color and mark as you were suggesting before and then that color is in the film that comes off of an object and then it comes into the eyes so that's all you get Become a Partially Examined Life Citizen or $5 a month Patreon supporter to hear the full discussion. For more information, check out partiallyexaminedlife.com support. Thanks.